Please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're going to look at chapter 6 this afternoon. It's been a little bit since we finished up chapter 5. I believe it was in September of last year. Probably some of you weren't here then, but I'll fill us in and get us up to speed about where we left off. Galatians chapter 6. It reads, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up your word, as we delve into this, Lord, we pray that that we'd be focused, Lord. We pray, Lord, as we open up your word, we'd understand the great privilege, Lord, that you would teach us through this. We can make application, that we can grow in sanctification leaving here. Lord, I pray that, that you would remind us of that salvation that has come at such a great cost, that price that was paid. You'd remind us each and every day. That would drive us, Lord, to want to serve you even more. Lord, I pray as we go through your word, as we hear of your salvation and redemption and reconciliation, that, that those that don't understand, that those that don't know Christ, might come to know him this afternoon. We pray, Lord, that you be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're at the point now in Galatians, the last chapter, where Paul is closing out his letter to the churches in Galatia. And these churches are, are mainly a Gentile area, but the churches that most likely had Jews also there and Jews that had come in. Paul has spent the last five chapters describing their error and correcting them. We close out chapter five going over Paul's instruction on sanctification and how to walk in the spirit. And he will now close out the letter by instructing them how to handle sin within the church. We should look at the idea of our continuing sanctification as Christians in this last chapter. 
The question for us is, how do we keep sin from impeding our sanctification? And Paul's going to answer that question here in chapter 6. I think there are four main ideas that Paul lays out in this last chapter, which are all interrelated. They all relate to a problem within the church that he's addressing, and they all relate to correcting that error. First, he's going to tell us how to address those spreading error within the church, those that are in sin, because sin is not something that can be left alone or ignored. It has to be addressed no matter how difficult it may be. Remember what Paul stated in chapter 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We consider that, we consider baking something like a loaf of bread. When we add yeast to the bowl to get the bread to rise, the yeast affects the entire bowl of ingredients. And that little bit has an effect on everything that's contained in that bowl. And when you, Once you add that yeast and mix it in, it would be near impossible to remove it from that bowl. The longer it stays in there, the more effect it has on the other ingredients in that bowl. So sin within ourselves like that, and sin within the church is no different. A little bit of sin left alone will affect the entire body. Second, Paul explains to us how we are to help one another through the process of sanctification, the process of being set apart in service to the Lord, of continually growing in Christ. Because sin that enters the body will stunt growth, it will get us off track and distracted, it will take our eyes off of Christ and allow us to look to self. And third here today, Paul shows us that there is no partiality with God. At this time when Paul wrote this, there were still those who held themselves in high esteem solely based on their lineage. Paul tells him otherwise in this book. In fact, we see this idea portrayed in every chapter of Galatians except in chapter 1 in Paul's introduction. In chapter 2, verse 6, he states that God shows no partiality. Chapter 3, verse 7, he states that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. At the end of chapter 3, he states that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female, but all are one in Christ. And he says that those that are in Christ are all Abraham's offspring, heirs due to the promise. He goes on to chapter 4, and he gave the illustration of Hagar and Sarah. And in chapter 5, verse 6, he states that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And finally, here in chapter 6, he states again that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but it's a new creature in Christ that matters now. Paul makes it crystal clear that God is no respecter of persons, that being a descendant of Abraham means nothing, being circumcised means nothing. If we are not in Christ, we are nothing. It's only through him that we gain access to the Father. And Paul closes out this chapter telling us who Israel now represents, who the Israel of God now represents. And fourth here, Paul explains in Galatians what the law was and what his purpose was. He says the law was added for our sins until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made because the law was our guardian preparing us for Christ. And the law showed us that we are born in depravity and even on our best day we cannot keep from sinning. The law made us understand our need for Christ. His purpose was to lead us to Christ, to draw us to him when we realize there's nothing we can do to pay our sin debt. The law showed us that we were violators of the perfect and righteous God in heaven and that we need one that can perfectly uphold it. Paul showed the Galatians that the laws they were adding to the gospel were nothing. It accomplished nothing but to make them slaves again. It did nothing to free them from the curse of sin, and Paul shows us that the law we need to uphold is the law of Christ. 
So with those four ideas in the back of our minds, let's get into this last chapter of Galatians. So first, let's look at how to address those spreading error within the church. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul says, if anyone is overtaken in sin, you who are spiritual, restore them in humility, keeping in mind that we can all be tempted that none of us are immune to sin. Paul spent the, in this entire letter addressing sin within the Galatian churches, and now he turns to them and instructs them on how she'd address this sin within their midst. And I think there's three parts to this first verse. First, he starts off with who this is for. He says, brothers. This doesn't just refer to men. This refers to those within the spiritual brotherhood, the redeemed that consists of both male and female. And then second, he states what the condition is. He said, if anyone is caught, or you could say overtaken, if anyone is overtaken in any fault, any offense, any sin, any transgression. And third, he instructs who should react and how they should react to that sin. So let's consider how this is used to see who Paul is referring to. He says, you who are spiritual. So who is Paul referring to when he states, you who are spiritual? That description raises a question in my mind, and I'm sure it does to some of you. Who exactly is considered spiritual? Is he referring to the church elders or maybe the church deacons? In our minds, we may look at that word spiritual in a way that is incorrect, in a way that I don't think Paul intended it to be understood. We may divide up Christians into different categories, but those we consider better, the more committed, those who seem to pray more, those who seem to study more, into one group. We can essentially divide up the brethren into different groups according to our idea of holiness. Once we do that, we may then consider the better of the groups spiritual. Perhaps we might think that would refer to some people like the Puritans or the Apostles or some other person we ranked in our mind as better than an average Christian, better than, than we are. But that assessment, that idea is incorrect. That's not what Paul is stating here. It's not referring to a subgroup of Christians, those who are, who are more dedicated and devoted than others, it's not referring to the people like the Puritans. It's not just referring to the apostles. So what exactly does Paul mean here? We can find out by looking a little closer at the meaning of the Greek word that's translated spiritual here. So spiritual refers to those who know God's saving work by the Spirit, of persons who are enlightened by the Holy Spirit, who are enjoying the influences, graces, gifts of the Holy Spirit. So when we consider that definition, spiritual would represent every person who's redeemed. It refers to every single person that is redeemed. Now that I've cleared it up, let me clarify a bit. I don't think I'd be out of line by adding some stipulations as we find in other scripture related to this topic of correcting sin. As an example, if I'm in egregious sin, I would not be a good candidate to do this. Why? Because we need to consider other passages that refer to this topic, other places in scripture that speak of the same thing. Particularly, what I mentioned, Matthew 7 is a good example of that. It says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So knowing what it states in Matthew, we must consider why we are doing this. And after examining ourselves, then proceed as Paul describes. 
So generally here, Paul's referring to what each one of us, each one of the redeemed should be doing. This applies to all of us as long as you're redeemed. The implication is that for us, that every one of us need to watch out for our brothers and sisters in Christ and be ready to restore them. How we approach our brothers and sisters is another important aspect, and Paul states how we need to restore them. We should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. I think that's, it's worth a minute to look into that word and refresh our memories and ensure we understand how Paul is using that word gentleness. It's, it's one we may not look at correctly in the way we look at our, our English language today. Within our society, we may see gentleness as a meekness, and in turn, meekness is a weakness, and that's not what Paul means here. So one commentator explains the word gentleness as this. He said, gentleness is not readily expressed in English, but it is a condition of mind and heart which demonstrates gentleness Not in weakness, but in power. It is a balance born in strength of character. So this is not a word that readily translates into the English, but it's a balance born of strength of character. It's not weakness. I think that gives us a better picture of what Paul means here. We know who this comes from, from Paul, and who it is to, from brother to brother. We know why because of sin. We know how we are to do it in gentleness. And now we need to know why we are to approach it in this way. Why do we restore them in a spirit of gentleness? So we can keep watch on our own selves. Because we are human and all prone to sin, this could easily be one of us. The one restoring could easily be the one needing restored, because how quickly the tables can turn on us. Just having that mindset going in gentleness and all the while thinking that this could be us will change the way that we approach this. Now that Paul's given some instruction on addressing this sin, he moves on to what will naturally come next. Growth through sanctification. So the one that's doing the restoring grows in the knowledge that it could be them in sin, and the one restored has repented and is now ready to grow in sanctification. At least that is the goal of this, the end goal. So once the sin is removed, the growth can continue. And second here, we see how we are to help one another through the process of sanctification. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You think back, there was a big issue throughout Galatians. They wanted to add the law to the gospel, and Paul was telling them that was wrong. So he mentions here, fulfill the law of Christ. He has not quite abandoned his clarification of what the law is, how they were in error by adding that. Some of the Galatians still wanted to go back to the law. And in verse 2, Paul's telling them, all right, Galatians, if you want to fulfill a law, if you're really intent on the law, then fulfill the law of Christ by bearing each other's burdens. If you're so intent on fulfilling a law, and fill the correct law. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill what Christ commanded. So what does it mean to bear one another's burdens? The word bear represents anything burdensome to bear up under especially trying or oppressive circumstances. In the Greek world, this word bear represents oppressive suffering. I think there are two applications what he's talking about here with that word burdens. First, those associated with the sin mentioned in the previous verse, the most obvious, but I don't think it stops there. I think we can apply Romans 15 here. Later on in Paul's letter to the Romans, he'll tell them, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I think this also refers to other burdens among believers. So let's think about burdens. Cannot each one of us here recall some burden we have been under? Can each one of us here think of a trying or oppressive circumstance in our lives? Paul knows that when we're in those situations of which he is very familiar, that we need one another. 
Can't we all think of a time when we were so burdened that we desired others to come alongside us and bear our burden with us? If you've never needed that, then praise God for that blessing, but you better be ready because most likely you will live to see a day when the burden is so great that you need that brother or sister to come alongside you and remind you of God's goodness even through the pain. There will be a time when you need a brother or sister to share with you how God brought them through a great difficulty. Also, we can be comforted knowing God is sovereign through everything we go through in life. Paul says, for those intent on wanting to fulfill the law, he states to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. So Christian, bear one another's burdens. Help a brother or sister in an oppressive circumstance. If you want to fulfill a law, fulfill this law. Fulfill the law of Christ. So whether these burdens be connected to sin, he mentions in verse 1, or other burdens. But do you understand the importance of this, of bearing one another's burdens? When you see a brother or sister, you can tell when things are not right. You can tell when there's a burden upon them. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is a good place for you to read on your own to understand this concept Paul's talking about. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells him about the suffering that he went through and the people that were with him. How it was so bad that he felt like he and those with him had received a sentence of death. They were so utterly burdened. beyond their strength, that they despaired of life itself. Have you been there before? Can you identify with this? I know many of you can. Paul stated that the reason God allowed that to happen to them was so that they would rely on God and not on themselves. It was done for their good. God used that to build their trust in him. And secondly, Paul explained in 2 Corinthians that God comforts us in our afflictions in order that we can comfort others. Imagine that. We share in sufferings, but we also share in comfort. And one way they comforted Paul that he mentioned in 2 Corinthians was in their prayer, something that every one of us can do no matter our situation. If we want to fulfill a law, fulfill the law of Christ and share one another's burdens. This is not optional. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when we think about restoring one caught in transgression, what does a prideful person look like? What does a person who ignored verse 1 look like? Paul describes it in verse 3. He said, for if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Verse 3 describes us when we're prideful. If anyone thinks he's something, we are all actually nothing, and we're just deceiving ourselves. If we ever think we're something, go to 1 Corinthians 4, 7 and meditate on this for a little while. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The next time we think we're something, remember what Paul states, we are only deceiving ourselves. If we do think we're anything other than sinners in need of the Savior, we are in error. If we ever get an inkling that we're something, refer to verse 3 of chapter 6 in Galatians, and Paul puts us all in our place. If pride ever takes a hold of us, revert to this verse. Remember that we are nothing outside of Christ. Sometimes we can see someone overtaken in sin and secretly in our heart we think that we would never do that. We justify and think that we are much better. We're more spiritual. We think that surely we would never fall into that sin. 
that very mindset is sinful and sets us up for falling into even more sin. Paul says that if any one of us, I don't care who, if any one of us thinks we're something, if any one of us thinks that in our flesh we are something, we are not, we deceive ourselves, we are lying to ourselves, we are all nothing. All we have has been given to us from God. We are only righteous due to what Christ has done for us. You believe you're something when you're nothing, you deceive your own mind. So how do we keep a right perspective on ourselves? How is it that we are to keep from convincing ourselves that we're something special? Paul says, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. We are to restore others, but not in a way that is self-righteous. We should always be looking at ourselves, examining ourselves, focusing on ourselves, and not focusing on others. Because ultimately, we'll each give account for our own selves. Each of us must make a critical examination of our own work, and and work here meaning the the works of men in reference to right and wrong is judged by the moral law, the precepts of the gospel. Work is defined by Scripture. Examine yourself and do not compare yourself to others. We can always find someone else that when we compare ourselves to them, we may look good. Paul says each is going to bear their own load. When we stand in judgment day, there will be no comparing ourselves to others. It is us against what God commanded of us. I cannot say that I was better than so-and-so because it simply doesn't matter. I do rest in Christ, but I do not sit back here and do nothing. There are precepts, there are commands, there are instructions for us to follow and live by. And now moving into verse 6, Paul shifts our focus off self and emphasizes others. He said, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Remember what Christ stated to the Pharisees when they asked about the law. Jesus stated, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We need to love God first and then others. We can do that by sharing with the ones who are teaching. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. Paul knows us. He knew himself and we're all alike. He knows that we still battle every day with this body of flesh. But don't be misled. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. We still have a tendency to want to please self, but do not be misled. God is not mocked. The word mocked is an interesting word. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It literally means to suffer from nose bleeding, but it takes the sense of to turn up one's nose. Paul is painting a picture here of one who is mocking God by not living in the way that we're instructed. He's describing one who may not be verbalized in a mocking, but in some way they live, in some ways that they live, they mock God in their refusal to submit to him. So what's the contrast, Paul? What does the one who submits to God look like versus the one who rebels against God? He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. On one side, we have the person who serves flesh, who serves self, who heeds the sinful body of flesh continually. That person, he says, will receive corruption. That person who wants nothing to do with God will get exactly what they want for all of eternity. But the other side, the one who submits, that person will reap a harvest of eternal life in heaven. That person will one day be removed from this body of flesh that person will put on the righteousness of Christ, and that person will be with God forever. 
But Paul knows and he understands what the daily battle is like. Battling the flesh is not easy. It's tiring. Sinning is easy and keeping our bodies disciplined and serving is not. So Paul tells us, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. We do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He says, do not grow weary, do not give up, do not tire of doing good for God. Because when the time is right, when God's perfect time is complete, then we will reap for all of eternity. We may suffer for a short time here, but we will reap for eternity and never forget that. So Paul says, as we have the opportune time, as we have this period of opportunity in this life, let us do good to everyone. And isn't that a tall order? We need to do good to everyone. But he says, especially to the household of faith, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So these verses from 6 to 10 need to be considered together to understand what Paul is speaking about. Let's not forget the concepts Paul has covered earlier in the book. And I would speculate from what Paul wrote, there was an increasing problem of selfishness within these Galatian churches. So let me explain that. In chapter 4, starting in verse 12, he tells them to become as he is. And then he reminds them that when he first came, they treated him as they would have, as they would have treated Christ himself. He even states that they would have given up their eyesight for him. And now he states that they treat him as an enemy. Who is it that changed their attitude? In verse 7 of chapter 5, he asks them who had hindered them from obeying the truth. And by verse 13, he's telling them to love one another. And in verse 14 of chapter 5, that the law is fulfilled by loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul finished up chapter 5 telling them to walk in the spirit and to stop serving the flesh. We already saw Paul start off chapter 6 telling them to bear one another's burdens. Paul is telling them to stop focusing on themselves and start serving and putting others first. So now in that context, let's look at verses 6 to 10. Those being taught, share with the one teaching. Those inheriting eternal life should be sowing to the Spirit. They should do good and not give up. As Paul is making them focus not on themselves, but on others and everything they do. When we're redeemed, it's no longer me, 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 and only a child would still be saying me, 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 and constantly thinking of themselves. It's the same way in Christianity. If you only think about yourself, at best, you're a spiritual infant. At worst, as stated in chapter 5, verse 19, those practicing works of the flesh are not redeemed. So, Christian, if you're selfish, you should be making a serious examination of yourself, not because I'm telling you, but because Paul is. Remember, in chapter 1, Paul was clear that he was not taught by man. He was taught by a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this same Paul is saying that if we are selfish, we are immature, and we are in error as Christians. We should love others as we do ourselves. We should crucify the flesh and its passions and its desires. We should walk in the Spirit, and we should bear one another's burdens. Why? Because it's the law of Christ. But how can we do this? We need to test our own work and see how we match up with Scripture. If I'm ever filled with pride, I'll return to this book and examine myself against what Paul wrote. We need to leave this book knowing we are nothing without Christ. And if we're in Christ, who do we put first, ourselves or others? Paul makes it clear that there is no partiality with God. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. 
Earlier in this letter, we saw Paul explain that others were trying to discredit him, but he proved his apostleship and the authority behind what he preached. Now he adds an assurance that this letter was from him. He authenticated it so there would be no doubt. And he goes on to say, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul gives us one last closing description of misleading the Galatian people by adding the law to the gospel. So those Jews who were stating that circumcision was required, Paul makes their motives clear. They're doing it for selfish reasons. They're doing it to look good among the other Jews. They're doing it to make a good showing for themselves, perhaps to go back and boast how they made the Gentiles complete an act that identified the Jews. Paul says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The way Paul describes these particular Jews here is very similar to how Christ described the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, where it states, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. It's do as I say and not as I do. What's good for me is not good for you. These circumcised were in stark contrast to what Paul is stating we should be like. The scribes and the Pharisees described by Christ, those Paul described here, they do everything for personal gain. They think of nobody but themselves. They're self-centered and have the good of only themselves in mind. They're people who are quick to boast in their flesh, the me, 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 look at what I did, I'm so great, I do great works. And can you see the contrast of what Paul's telling us? And fourth, we see that the law we need to uphold is the law of Christ. He says, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's the contrast. Paul states in verse 14, this is what we are to emulate. Those who love their neighbor, who look to serve others in obedience to Christ, those who fulfill the law of Christ do not boast in themselves. They boast in Christ and only in him. Those true servants of Christ crucify themselves. They subdue selfishness and attractions to the world. Do you want to identify with Christ? Our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, and in turn we crucify ourselves, not a physical crucifixion, but we remove our attraction to everything else but him, and that is how we identify ourselves with the Savior. The world is separated from us, and we are separated from the world, and nothing matters now but obedience to him. And this is the same idea Paul already discussed in chapter 3 of Galatians. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, second time he said this in his book. So the question is, who's special to God now? Who is now the apple of God's eye? Paul makes his last attempt to correct those that are misleading. This was a concept hard to accept for some people. And as for those Jews who think they're something, those who boasted having Abraham as their father, recall what John the Baptist told the Sadducees and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3. It reads, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Paul says circumcision means absolutely nothing to God, whether we are or whether we are not. So what matters? What now creates a separation in us? What now sets us apart? What has changed that some of the Jews will not recognize? That only those who are new creation in Christ count for anything. We're either lost or redeemed, the goats or the sheep, the tares or the wheat. And physical acts like circumcision mean nothing. But only when we are born as a new creature in Christ, that's what matters. He raises us up into new beings for him. And Paul will explain this idea in the sixth chapter of Romans, where he states, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul says, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Remember what Paul told the Jews in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are now the sons of Abraham. And here Paul tells them, oh, by the way, you Jews who are so proud to claim to be descendants of Abraham, let me explain to you how it is now. He says to them, you who were born in the newness of life, those that are redeemed, Jews and Gentiles, those who walk by this new rule, peace and mercy be upon you, not only on the physical descendants. Circumcision means nothing. Tracing lineage to Abraham means nothing. Nationality means nothing. Paul says all who are a new creation in Christ are now the Israel of God. And yes, even the uncircumcised Gentiles are referred to as the Israel of God. There is no longer a distinction made between Jew and Gentile in identifying God's people. Jew or Gentile, those in Christ, are now the Israel of God. Those who are born new in Christ, they are new. They are the new Israel. They are now God's Israel. And I can imagine what a parting shot that was when Paul told the Jews that. So, redeem. let's think about what Paul has told us in this book as he described our relationship to the Father in heaven due to Christ. First, in chapter 3, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and as many as who were baptized into Christ had put on Christ. In chapter 4, he states that we are heirs through Christ, and we can now cry, Abba, Father, because we are heirs. And then last here, he says, we are now the Israel of God. We are his redeemed. We should rejoice at that thought. We, the Gentiles, who had no right to heirship, are now the Israel of God. Praise the Lord God Almighty for choosing us. Peace and mercy be upon us. Because we are the Israel of God. Meditate on that thought. Consider the implications of what Paul just stated. Consider what we are in Christ and due to Christ. And so Paul closes out this letter, the book we're looking at, the final two verses. He states, henceforth, Henceforth, no one be the cause of trouble. He says, don't cause trouble, but bear one another's burdens. I bear the marks of Jesus, and may the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, your brothers in Christ. I know that's a lot to unpack this last chapter. We covered a lot of ground today, but I ask as we close, you take away something with you, something you can apply from this book. Paul explained to us how we address those overtaken in sin he explained to us how we are to help one another through sanctification. He showed us there is no partiality with God, and he showed us that we need to uphold the law of Christ. 
But what we cover through the book of Galatians will be useless unless we implement it, unless we leave here changed and ready to grow in sanctification, now through obedience. Consider one of these three things to take as your takeaway from this book. Go back and read it on your own as you make application that we found in it. So one thing, we should remember how we are misled, how a small group of people like the Judaizers within the Galatian churches can cause an error, such great error in a large group. Scripture is our foundation. We need to be grounded and living in it daily. It doesn't come easy. It takes work day after day after day. And second, we need to go beyond just reading Scripture. We need to understand what we read. Paul described righteousness and justification and sanctification, among other ideas and concepts, through this letter. When we read, we need to set out to understand. We need to comprehend what we read. We need to know how it fits in with all the remainder of Scripture so we can apply it. And third, we need to grow in sanctification by dying to self and living for Christ as we serve others. We cannot be immature Christians for our entire lives. If we had children that never grew taller, that never gained knowledge, never wanted to grow up and be anything other than a child, we would understand there was something wrong. We'd be questioning why. It's no different spiritually. We must grow and mature in Christ. So we need to live in Scripture to recognize error. We need to commit ourselves to understanding what we read and apply it. We need to live for Christ each day by serving him. And lastly, we need to understand that through the trials of life, God is growing us in sanctification until the day comes when he will come for us. So in a spiritual sense, we all start to say we're all born slaves to this world as enemies of God. In reality, as we apply this to salvation, there is only one rightful heir to God the Father, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us ever have any right to salvation. We were unable to keep the law and are rightfully and justly required to pay the price for our sin. But Christ was born under the law. He came to fulfill the law on the behalf of those that could not do it themselves, us the redeemed. We have our Messiah on one side, the one who always did what pleased the Father, and the remainder of us on the other side. Jesus Christ is the heir, and the rest of us are the slaves with no inherent right to become heirs. We are enslaved to the world, we're slaves to Satan, yet some will remain enslaved to Satan, and some will be freed. But not only freed, some will become heirs due to the promise God made to Abraham. God the Father has his Son, the only heir to all, and every human being is born a slave to the world. But the Father, knowing we had no way for redemption in ourselves, first foreshadowed the grace that would be offered to us in the third chapter of Genesis. He alluded to the fact that he would send his Son to provide redemption for us. And then the Father put in place his law as the guardian. It was our schoolmaster with the goal being to bring the redeemed into heirship. That law educated us on God and his requirements, and it showed us that we could not uphold it. It showed the redeemed that we needed the Messiah. We needed someone that could perfectly uphold it to come. And the Father sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem us who were under the law. The redemption for Christ Jesus made possible the adoption into the family of God for us to become heirs through Christ, but it's something that's not universally applied to all. The redeemed went from slaves to sons, and as a result being sons, we became heirs. The indwelling spirit and those he's redeemed is why we can proclaim also Abba Father. There's nothing I can think of that would bring us more joy than to know that we were once slaves to Satan, and our Father provided every means to redeem us through his Son.
We were adopted and became heirs and are now sons. We are heirs through God. Christ was a rightful heir that could proclaim Abba, Father, and through him the redeemed can now proclaim the same. Every single one of us were born a slave to this world. Our father knew those that were his. There was nothing we could do as slaves, nothing on our own that would make us true sons to the father. But through Christ, the redeemed became sons and heirs as we were freed from the chains of sin and that spirit within us allows us now to proclaim Abba, Father. So which side are you on? Are you the redeemed, those who can joyfully proclaim the name of Christ? Or are you still enslaved to sin? serving the prince of the air, serving your flesh, and serving Satan. Do you know him and the power of his resurrection? Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon So believer, the next time you're down, the next time you're going through trials, the next time you can do nothing but cry out to God for help, the next time you can relate to the psalmist who says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? The next time you're cast down, think about the psalmist's reply. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Think about what Paul states here of us, redeemed. We are now the Israel of God. We can now cry, Abba, Father. We need to look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And all glory and praise be to our Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. What great joy it is for us to be called heirs. To be able to cry out, Abba, Father, to know that we are now referred to as God's, as Israel of God. Something never possible for and is only through Christ. Lord, as I read through this and think about this, I'm so amazed in knowing us that we're born in sin and, and dead in our sins and enemies, the God that I now pray to. That you saw fit to see your son to suffer, that suffer that we can understand. We can understand the crown of thorns and the beatings and the nails through flesh. But we cannot understand and comprehend what it was for him to take on our sins. What it was to take on your wrath in our place. He willingly did that for us. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here that does not know that, does not understand that, that is still a slave to Satan, that you would open up their eyes, give them understanding, help them to understand their sin, their offense to the God we pray to, their need for the Savior who went to that cross. God, I pray you would remind us each day of that, how unfaithful, unholy in our sinfulness, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remind us each day, Lord, as we wake up, a reminder to serve you. We wouldn't turn to that world and turn away. We would never forget that great price that Christ paid for us. Lord, I pray you continue to teach us through your word. Lord, help us to go out here, that we would all grow in sanctification. 
that we would help to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would share those loads as we go through these difficulties and trials and temptations and tribulations. We can look back and see how your hand was upon us the whole time, knowing that in your sovereign will, it was done for our good. Help us to understand, Lord, we can do nothing but cry out to you. When you teach us and show us, there's nothing in us. We have nothing without Christ. I pray, Lord, as we go through those situations, we look back and we can see. We can see it was for our good, Lord. We have a brother or sister going through the same things. We can share those things. We can share in comfort with them. We can share how you brought us through that. We pray, Lord, that you would grow your church as you see fit. We pray in this place, Lord, you make us into a people that are pleasing to you, a people that would serve you every day as long as you give us breath until that time comes when we're taken from here. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And he was persecuted on account of it. Eventually, you may remember, he was taken up into heaven uh, by a whirlwind. Over in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the transfiguration, uh, Jesus tells them again not to tell anyone the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples ask the obvious question. They say, well, then why do the scribes say Elijah must come, talking back toward the end of the book of Malachi. And Jesus says, this is his answer. Elijah does come and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, referring to John the Baptist, but did to him whatever they pleased. Remember, John the Baptist has been beheaded at this point. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So like Elijah, the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of his people. Like Moses, the the prophet greater than Moses, uh, Jesus is about to accomplish a new kind of exodus. He is about to set out on a journey as he goes to Jerusalem that is going to bring about the deliverance of his people. What did Jesus say? He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, how is this liberty, how is this deliverance going to come about? Well, it will be victory through the path of suffering. Through the path of suffering. And it's at this point that the disciples begin to stir a little bit from their sleep. They begin to to wake up and you You have to love Peter, uh, always eager to speak up, never uh, reluctant to chime in to offer his perspective there. It says in verse 33, as the men were parting from him, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter catches a sense of the glory and the wonder of the occasion, and he wants to hold on to it. You can't blame him for that. He wants to hold on to what's happening there 
in that moment. You can appreciate that desire. Let's camp out here. Let's stay in this place of glory. But that was not the way of redemption. Before glory, the suffering and the shame of the cross must come. So what purpose does the transfiguration serve in this broader context? Well, Christ has just called his people to a path of suffering, to taking up our cross. He has bid us come and die. But now, for just a moment, his disciples see what? See glory. Glory on the other side. They don't see a a change, so to speak, in Jesus. They don't see Jesus become something that he wasn't. They see a revealing of who Jesus is, a lifting of the veil, if you will. And so the transfiguration functions like a preview of the kingdom in its not yet state. Normally, you have to taste death before you get there. But aiming to strengthen and stabilize the disciples, and nearly all of them are going to lose their life for Christ, he gives them this encouragement. On the other side of suffering, there lays a crown. On the other side of the cross, we too shall all be changed, just like Moses and Elijah. So you have this strong note of encouragement and assurance given to the the disciples, along with all of Christ's followers. We don't have to wonder that this was part of Christ's intention. You can see this borne out years later in Peter's ministry. Um, You're welcome to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 if you'd like. I want to read a portion of scripture there. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, You hear the impact that this had on the ministry and the life of Peter, and the impact also that he expects it to have on ours as we trod this path that is so laden with trials and uh, sufferings and afflictions. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, he's just talked about faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly love, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, here's the basis of his encouragement to the church to press on to the end. Here's the basis of our encouragement to press on to the end, ever clinging to Christ, He says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see what he says there at the end, you would do well to pay attention to what we've heard. Pay attention to this. Until the kingdom of God comes in its glorious fullness, at the return of Christ, see the glory of Christ. When, when, when the, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When you see the transfiguration, be strengthened. Remember what lies ahead. Remember the glory. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, but we will share in his glory. Now until then, what should we do? Listen to God's Son. Listen to the Chosen One. Remember Moses' words. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. We have a new, exalted, glorious covenant mediator today. Listen to him. Love him. Serve him. Follow him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the strength and encouragement we find in your word. Thank you for Christ. Lord, we do ask for your help as we endeavor to be faithful followers of your son, faithful witnesses for him. We ask for your grace, grace to deny ourselves, grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, grace to shoulder the cross you've called us to bear and to do so gladly, willingly, as good soldiers of the the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we uh, confess that we often find ourselves growing tired and weary. Our allegiance is found wavering. Our resolve isn't what it should be. We pray for your forgiveness. We ask that you would cleanse and restore us to yourself and give us single-minded hearts. Help us to follow your Son, the Christ of God. It's for his name's sake we pray.